The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, make your way to the book of Galatians. We are going to pick up our journey through Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. We're going to spend our spring, our summer, who knows, maybe our fall even there, given my pace. Make your way to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a few questions this morning as we try to get settled. First question is simply this. When was the last time, because I'm going to presume that like me, you have done this. When was the last time that you lied about something totally insignificant? in the effort to win the approval of someone else? When was the last time you said, yeah, I read that book, yeah, I've seen that movie, yeah, I've been to that part of the world, but you left out that you've only been there through the travel channel? When was the last time you lied about something totally insignificant in the effort to win the approval of someone else? Maybe that's not you. How about this one? When was the last time you spent money you didn't have to impress someone you didn't like? But for whatever reason, their approval of you mattered tremendously. When was the last time you spent money you didn't really have to impress someone you probably didn't really like? Because for whatever reason, their approval of you mattered tremendously. Maybe that's not your cup of tea either. Parents, let me try to get you. When was the last time you were truly angered by something that your children did? Not because what they did was harmful to themselves, not because what they did was harmful to anyone else around them, but because what they did was harmful to your reputation as a parent who had it all together. The last time that precious blessing of the Lord decided in the store that they had different plans for your time than you did. And how they let you know wasn't harmful to themselves, didn't hurt anybody that was around you, but your reputation in the moment as someone who had it all together took a major hit. Not you either? When was the last time you did or didn't say or do something all for the effort of having someone else approve of you? Of having someone else accept you? Of having someone else value you? Of having someone else receive you? Of feeling, as some of you might say, complete? Feel, some of you might say, as whole? When was the last time you did or didn't say or do anything all in the effort of having someone approve of you. The Bible calls the desire in us for this kind of acceptance and this kind of approval the desire for righteousness. And the Bible says that this desire is common to every human on the face of the earth. It's intrinsically part of the human experience. Every single human needs it. Every single human is constantly pursuing it. And when it comes to right standing acceptance, when it comes to being received and secure in a relationship with God, there isn't a one of us, the Bible says, that can achieve it on our own. Friends, this was the story of my life. Some of you may or may not know that. I was born a natural liar. I'm very good at lying. Lying comes very easily to me. By the time that I graduated college, my parents and I had looked back on my life and realized that I had been to 18 or 19 different schools in the course of my educational career. That was 18 different first days, 18 different new lunchrooms, 18 different new play playgrounds, 
18 different new opportunities to be whoever I needed to be or whoever I wanted to be given the situation that I was in. By the time I was a young adult, I had spun so many stories related to my life that if you were to press me on any of them, I probably couldn't have told you which parts were true and which parts weren't. All of that, I grew up in the church. I knew the stories of the Bible. I knew the stories of Jesus. I knew the story of the gospel. But I also quickly knew that being a Christian was a role that I could deliver whenever I was called upon. By the time that I was 20 years old, that was the role that would define my life. I was so convincing in my role as a Christian that I had convinced myself that it was true. But there was truly no sorrow for sin in my heart, no desire for holiness or Christ-likeness, and no real love for Jesus present in me. But the people around me approved of my performance, and that's what I was looking for. I did not face the reality that though they approved, God didn't. I may have fooled them, I may have even fooled myself, but I never fooled God. I was a liar. I deserved his judgment. And I was putting on a performance that would take me all the way to hell. But God in his kindness put a man in my life who saw straight through my performance. I felt like I was so convincing, I had convinced myself, but he could see straight through it and he would relentlessly preached the gospel to me. And the seeds that had been sown in my heart as a young child were beginning to be watered. But I tried to put on one last great performance. I packed up my truck. I moved across the country to be a part of a small pastoral internship that I had absolutely no business being a part of, but I could put on a good show. And it was in the kindness of God during that part of my life that would prove to be the undoing of what I affectionately call the artist formerly known as Robert. It was in that part of my life that God showed me that I was truly a liar. And then the performance that I was putting on for everyone else around me was doing nothing but trampling on the sacrifice of his son. And that there was no performance that I could ever give that would be good enough to make me right before him. And when he showed me that, I was undone. But I was in the right place. I was exactly where he wanted me to be because it was at that point in my life that he began to put me back together. It was then that the sweetness of the life of Jesus lived in my place. The death of Jesus died for the forgiveness of my sins. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death, finally became sweet to me. It was then for the first time in my life that I began to not only be aware of the performance, but I began to push back against the desire to perform, the quest for this kind of acceptance, and began to live in the freedom that God had for me through his son. But here's the reality. The fight against that performance, it hasn't really stopped. Every single day is another day where I have to fight the desire in my heart to put on a show to live for the approval of God rather than believing I get the chance to live in the freedom of God's approval that he's won for me through his son. Some days my confidence in what he's done for me through Christ may weaken, it may wane, but I can go to bed assured that his commitment to me never gives in. 
Friends, the desire for approval, the desire for acceptance, the desire for righteousness, it's at the heart of the human experience. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the message that Paul is going to deliver to the churches in Galatia through this letter. It's at the heart of what we get to look at this morning in Galatians chapter 2. What does it mean for you and I to live our lives from an approval that God has given us through the work of his son rather than living for right standing with God? Always performing, always working, but never really attaining what it is we're after. Friends, this is the essence of what Paul is going to communicate in Galatians chapter 2, especially in the second half of the chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, make your way there. It's in the second part of Galatians chapter 2 that you and I come face to face with an authentic Christian experience that when lived out is a Christianity that can change the world. If any of you read blogs or articles about the church and about what, what's happening around the world in the church today, you most likely have come across articles or books or, or blogs asking the question, what kind of Christianity do we need today? Given the complexities of our world, given the global nature of our world, given the changing pace of our world, what kind of Christianity do we need today to make the real Jesus non-ignorable to a watching world? Here's the thing. It's not a new question. The question's been asked for centuries. In fact, that guy who God put in my life to preach the gospel to me as a 19-year-old, he gave me a book that I wouldn't read for another 13 years. But that book was a collection of, of sermons and of, of messages and of Bible studies written by a man named Francis Schaeffer. And there was one article, one message in that book that 13 years later I read and I have been reading multiple times every single year since. And it was a message that Schaefer delivered in 1974 in Lusain at the Global Conference on World Evangelization. And it was dealing with this very question that we see lived out in front of us in Galatians chapter 2. What kind of Christianity do we need today? And Schaefer's answer was essentially this. The same Christianity you see in the New Testament. The same Christianity you see lived out in the New Testament is the same Christianity we need today. And that Christianity is made up of two contents and two realities. That Christianity is made up, one, of the content of true biblical doctrine. A strong biblical truth and doctrine of the gospel of the work of God through Christ for sinners. It's made up of the second content that's simply this. Honest answers to honest questions rightly respecting the questions and the doubts that people who have not yet known the grace of God in Christ ask and giving honest answers to those honest questions. But two, those two contents come together with two realities to make up a Christianity that we see in the New Testament that's capable of transforming the world even now. And those realities are simply this, a vital faith, a vital Christian experience. And what Schaefer means by that is an everyday relationship with God through repentance and faith that presses into the realities of the cross and the present power of the Spirit for life now. And along with that, Schaefer said, is the reality of the beauty of human relationships that there's something about the relationships between people whose lives are built on the strong foundation of the gospel expressed in reconciliation and forgiveness that make the message of the grace of God striking and utterly irresistible to the world. 
Two contents, two realities. All of them on technicolor display in Galatians chapter 2. All of them a picture of a Christianity that changed the world then and a Christianity that can change the world now. And so here's what we're going to do. The last half of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, are for me some of the most profound verses in the entire book. So we're not going to rush through them. What we're going to do is set the scene for the verses this morning and begin to look at those verses through that lens that Schaefer gives us of a Christianity that can change the world. We'll hit one part of it this morning, the true biblical doctrine of the gospel that undergirds all the realities that flow out of it, and next week we'll jump on another one. And I don't know how long we'll be there, but they're all here and they're all good. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 2. And if you're a guest with us this morning and you're wondering what in the world we're doing and how we got to where we are here, let me try to get you caught up real fast. Paul was writing this letter to a group of churches in the region of Galatia that he had preached the gospel to, that they had received, and they had begun to live in the freedom of. But as Paul went out of Galatia, some teachers came in, and those teachers were trying to undermine Paul's authority as an apostle and trying to undermine the gospel that Paul had preached to those churches. So Paul, in chapters 1 and 2, has been building an argument to defend to the churches his authority as an apostle and the authority of the gospel that he preaches. In chapter 1, Paul made the case that his apostleship and his authority and the gospel that he proclaimed didn't come from any man on earth. No other man taught it to him. No other man commissioned him in it. He had received it by revelation from God, directly from God himself. And he went on in the first part of chapter 2 to say not only was his apostleship given to him by God and not only was the message of the gospel revealed to him by God, not through any other man, but the apostles in Jerusalem, they approved of the message that he was preaching. They received the message that he was preaching. They agreed with what he was preaching. And the unity of the church was built upon the foundation of the message of the gospel. It wasn't in danger of being fractured now by two, two parties preaching two different things. Those who were in Jerusalem who had grown up as Jews believed that through faith alone and by the grace of God in Christ, Gentiles would live free. They weren't required to transform their lives to live as Jews, obeying the cultural laws of Jews. And on the other side, Jews who believed in Christ for salvation, they were free to live as Gentiles. They no longer had to follow the clean laws of the Jewish culture in order to be acceptable before God. And that's exactly what was happening for some of the apostles in Jerusalem. They were enjoying the freedom that God had given them and they were living out that freedom with Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where the story picks up in verse 11. Paul is narrating another experience to continue to build this argument for the gospel. Verse 11, Paul says, when, when Cephas, and that's Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, and you need to get a picture in your head that Antioch isn't just some suburban outpost and part of the region at this point. Antioch was one of the greatest metropolitan areas of its time. Caesars, for centuries, had dumped tremendous amount of money into the city of Antioch to build stadiums, to build libraries. There were roads and water ports into the region. It was a large place, a metropolitan area made up of people from all around the empire. It was an amazingly spectacular place. There are people from every part of the world there. That's where the scene is, is happening. Paul says that Peter, when he came to Antioch, he opposed Peter, he goes on to say, to his face. Because Peter stood condemned. Why did Peter stand condemned? Well, 
For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter, having celebrated the freedom that was his in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was now eating and doing life with Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, not having to follow the cultural, ceremonial, and cleanly laws of Judaism. He was eating pork. He didn't have separate plates to cook on and separate plates to eat on and separate ways to wash his hands and separate ways to clean himself. He was having a barbecue, eating with brothers and sisters in Christ and loving all of it. But then some people came into town and something began to change. When these certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what it was that Peter was fearing, but what we can infer from the circumstance is that the approval of these men in Peter's heart was so great that he was willing to withdraw from his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ in order to appear a certain way before them. And not only that, verse 13, when Peter did this, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter's desire for the approval of another group of people led him to behave in a way that was contrary to the freedom that he knew was his in the work of God's grace through faith in Christ and it impacted the way even others who were with him began to behave as well. And we'll deal with all of the implications of that specifically next week, but just get the picture of what's happening here. Paul said in verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, arguably my favorite phrase in the entire book. When we talk about that reality that Schaefer talked about, about a vital Christian faith and every day pressing into the realities of God's work of grace for you on the cross and the everyday reality of his spirit present with you, it's this right here. It's living every single day in step with the truth of the gospel. A tremendous phrase. We'll, we'll unpack it in the weeks to come, but Paul says, when I saw that their behavior their desire for the approval of these people that led them to deny what they knew to be true about them because of God's grace and behave in a different way. When I saw that it wasn't in step with what I knew they believed about the gospel, I had to oppose them. I had to speak to them. What's the beauty of the human relationship? We'll get there too. And I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, here's what I want for this morning. I just want you to see the scenario. Can you see the picture? Can you begin to feel what's happening there? Can you get a sense of, of Peter's living in the freedom of the grace of the gospel? Maybe this is true for you. Living in the freedom of what God's done for you by faith in his son. Knowing that your approval, your acceptance, your righteousness before God is based on that. But all of a sudden, there's this thing in you that needs the approval of someone else. And the desire for their approval and their reception and their respect trumps what you know to be true for you in the gospel. Can you begin to see what's happening here? What Paul says to Peter when he confronts Peter, when he realizes that his behavior is out of step with the gospel, is the content of verses 15 through 21. Verses 15 through 21 summarize what Paul says to Peter when he confronts him. And it's in this summary that we come face to face and hit headlong into the bedrock of the gospel. 
What Schaefer said was the, the true content of a Christianity that will change the world, true biblical gospel doctrine, we come head to head with in what Paul says to Peter in this moment. And it's in verses 15 through 21. So I'm going to read them to us, and then I'm going to do the best that I can in the time that we have to make them as clear and as simple as I possibly can. So verse 15, when he speaks to Peter, here's what Paul says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died for the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're gonna deal with that one really well next week. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The strong biblical foundation on which a Christianity that can transform the world is built upon is found in those verses. And an understanding of what Paul says in those verses that can change your life can be summed up, brought together, sewn together as, as simply as I can through two words. Two words in those verses that will help open this thing up to you. The first word is the word righteousness. You see it down there in verse 21. It's the summary of what Paul is saying to Peter when he's responding to Peter's behavior that wasn't in line with the truth of the gospel. It wasn't in step, in sync with the gospel that Peter had believed. And in the summary of what Paul says to him, Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. Why? For if righteousness, there's our word, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. J. Gresham Machen, some of you may be familiar with Machen. He was a Presbyterian pastor and apologist second to none in the last century. Machen said that verse 21 of Galatians chapter 2 is in fact the key to the entire book of Galatians. And when taken to heart and believed, it's the key to understanding the entire Christian life. Why? Because righteousness is everything. When you understand what righteousness is, you'll understand that righteousness is everything. Now, righteousness is technically a theological word, but we use it in our everyday language with one another. So I asked multiple people over the last couple of weeks what comes to their mind when they use the word righteous or they use the word righteousness in their communication. What are you trying to communicate when you use that word now with someone else? And by far, the overwhelming response that I got, not from everyone, but the most consistent response that I got had something to do with trying to communicate being good. Using the word righteous or the word righteousness now was trying to communicate somehow in conversation the idea of being good. When we think about these words now, righteous and righteousness, they carry for us the idea and the overtones of morality and virtue. But here's the thing. That's not how they're used in the Bible. In the Bible, the words righteous and righteousness, they don't carry this aspect of virtue. 
They don't carry this aspect of morality. Quite literally, righteousness when used in the Bible means right standing. That's what it means. It means having right standing. Righteousness in the Bible means having a right standing with someone based on a track record, on your track record of fidelity and faithfulness to the relationship. That's what it means. That's the idea that's communicated when the Bible talks about righteousness. It's talking about being right with someone, being in right standing with someone based on your track record of fidelity and faithfulness to the relationship. And that's how we think about it now if we were to think about our relationships, honestly. If you're going to have a relationship with someone significantly, you're going to need to be patient with them. You're going to need to listen to them. You're going to need to put their needs and their wants above yours. You're going to need to listen and understand what brings them joy. You're going to need to listen and understand the things that bring them sadness. And the minute we stop doing those things in relationship with one another, the minute we begin to stop listening, think we have everyone figured out, the minute we have everyone's life planned out for them, the minute our relationship becomes about what it means for us, you know in the ex- your own experience that relationship can begin to fracture and begin to drift. The right standing you have with one another no longer exists. Why? Well, it's the track record of your unfaithfulness to care, to listen, to be there. One commentator in trying to communicate this, he said it this way. The Bible says that everybody is born into the world knowing they're not right, that they're not acceptable, that they're not valuable, that they're not lovable, and that they better find a way to make themselves so quick. Of course, your family has a great deal to do with how loud that echoes in your ears as you grow up. There's zero doubt about that. But the fact is, you can love your kids till the cows come home, You can fill their lives with love and you can still watch them being driven to fit in, driven to look okay to their peers, driven to go out and either get A's or make themselves beautiful or do something else. You can see it and you can watch it. And what is the it that you're seeing? This writer said, it's the struggle for righteousness. Everybody's out for righteousness. Everybody needs it. Everybody's looking for it. And what Paul says here in verse 21 is that you and I can do everything possible with our life to try to gain this right standing with God, to try to gain this righteousness with God through our obedience to the law. And that can be the law that you receive from God's word, the collection of do's and don'ts that you think of in your mind. It can be whatever cultural law you put on yourself that defines who, what God is in your mind and what a good life is in your mind. It doesn't matter. But you and I can put on the best performance known to man, obeying whatever it is that we think is put in front of us that will make us right with God, however we understand him to be. And Paul says, you can't do it. You can never put on the performance perfect enough to make yourself right before God. What you want the most, what you crave the most, what's hardwired and woven into the human existence, the need for acceptance, it's out of your control. In fact, Paul says, if righteousness with God could come by keeping the law, if you could make yourself right with God by putting on the perfect performance, I mean you nail the obedience to a T. 
Paul said, if you could make yourself right with God before God, righteousness, right standing based on your obedience, it would have already been found. That's what he said. It would have already been done. It would have already been found. But you can't. It's not possible. Everything hinges on righteousness. Right standing with God. A right standing with God that's built upon our track record of faithfulness and fidelity to the relationship. Now here's the problem. We're all aware of just how unfaithful we are to that relationship. If righteousness and right standing is built upon the fidelity and faithfulness, our track record to the relationship, just think about how much effort you and I put in, not just in trying to perform perfectly, but to cover up all the ways we don't perform perfectly. Righteousness is built on our track record. Right standing is built upon our track record in the relationship. And you know well what your track record looks like. Which is why the other word that Paul uses here becomes so sweet and becomes so central. Because we desperately want righteousness. We desperately need righteousness. And yet we know what's true about us. And so the second word that Paul uses here that goes together with righteousness, that begins to open up this righteousness on which everything hinges that we're so desperately desiring is is the word justified. The word justified. Verse 16, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So no one will be justified by works of the law and no one can be made right before God through obedience to the law. And here's what you need to kind of understand, and I'm going to try to show how these two things go together and how these two things open up the beauty of the gospel to us and form the foundation on which Christianity that can change the world is built. Righteousness and justification come from the same word in Greek. If you were to go look these things up and go on your, go on your computer and look these verses up and find them in the Greek language and run your cursor over the words so you can see what the word says, you'll find that these words come from the same root and they get confused. And because they get confused, we use them in ways that they're not necessarily meaning to be used in the way that Paul wrote. So I want you to understand what Paul is meaning when he writes this way and when he says this and how it relates to this righteousness that we are so desperately chasing after. Let me give you the the most simple understanding that I can and then try to unpack it a little bit. To be justified. To justify someone is to declare them righteous. That's the most simple definition I can give you. To justify someone is to declare them righteous. Righteousness is a right standing based on your track record of faithfulness. To justify someone is to declare that you have a right standing based on your perfect track record of faithfulness. That's what to justify means. But I confuse you. Let's let J.I. Packer help you. Packer says to justify is to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to the penalty, but entitled to all the privileges of those who have kept the law, though they've broken it. 
Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation. Acquittal. Legal immunity. So listen, what we desperately want and need is right standing with God. Righteousness. That righteousness, that right standing is based on our track record of fidelity and faithfulness to the relationship. And you and I know that track record is no good. So we put on our performance trying to figure out if we can do enough things or the right things at the right time, meet the right standards. Maybe we can put a performance on that's good enough for God to actually receive us that we might know we're right before his eyes. And Paul says it can't happen. You need to be justified. The record needs to be cleared. And here's what changed everything for me some 16 years ago or so. I could put on a performance well enough to even make myself and the majority of people around me believe that I knew everything that was being said here, that I believed everything that was being said here, that I was the poster child for what it meant to live as a faithful Christian in a globally changing world. And 16, 17, I don't know how many years ago, the truth of what Paul was saying in here was opened up into my heart by God. And here it is. And when it drops into your heart, it will literally change everything for you. To be justified does not mean the facts about you change. I think some of us talk about justification. We talk about salvation. We talk about forgiveness in such a way that we begin to believe the facts about us change. The fundamental truth about our sin changes. That's not what it means to be justified. Do you know what it means to be justified? To be justified means that someone's disposition towards you, someone's view of you changes in light of those facts. Think about it this way. When you've done something to disappoint someone, when you have not kept your word to someone, when you tried to be somewhere you were supposed to be at a certain time and you find yourself an hour late and you've got every reason for knowing why you were, you were late and you get there and you have to do what? You have to justify why you're so late to the person that you've disappointed. What are you trying to do? Can you change the literal facts of what happened? Can you turn the hand of time back and the clock backwards? No, what you're trying to do when you try to justify yourself and your tardiness to that person is you're trying to get the way they view you to change in light of the truth about you. That's what it means to be justified. To be justified does not mean that you quit sinning. It doesn't mean the facts about you have changed. It means that God's view of you in light of those facts has changed. Paul says in verse 16, we know a person is not justified by the works of the law. You and I, standing in the courtroom of God with a track record of sin a million miles long, we know that there's no performance that we could put on, no story that we could spin to get God to view us differently in light of the facts of our sin. And yet, the righteousness and the standing with him that we so desperately want is based on our track record of fidelity to the relationship. And we know there's nothing that we can do and nothing we can say and no obedience that we can perform that would get him to justify us, change his view of us in light of what's true about our sin. Which is what makes what Paul says in verse 16 so sweet. Yes, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but. There's that holy conjunction again. But through faith in Christ Jesus. See, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, justification is yours. You got to hear this. This will change everything for some of you. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God's view of you and disposition towards you in light of your sin is changed. You're justified. He sees you as he sees his son. He sees you in his son, his perfect record of obedience. The facts of your sin don't change. It's not as though all of a sudden they've they've changed and the reality of what you've done and your unfaithfulness has changed. No, it's there. God's view of you and disposition towards you has changed. And now he sees you differently, which is the foundation of what? Your righteousness. Now the acceptance you so desperately want, so desperately need, so desperately chase after, knowing you're received, knowing you're loved, knowing you're accepted, the grounds for that acceptance now, knowing that God sees you, not through the lens of your sin, but his disposition towards you has changed because he sees you in his son. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, justification is yours. Righteousness Right standing with God is yours. Listen, the essence of being a Christian is to be justified. It's to be made righteous. We get so confused with our language sometimes when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. I know more times than I'd ever want to admit someone's asked me that question and I've given them an answer that's something akin to, well, just promise that you'll trust God with your whole heart. Just ask his power to come into your life to help you live. Promise that you'll be good for the rest of your days. And here's the thing. Some of those things might be fruit of being a Christian, but they're not the essence of it. The essence of being a Christian is to be justified. The essence of being a Christian is to be righteous. When you become a Christian, when you are justified, it doesn't mean that you've stopped sinning. It doesn't mean the truth of you is changed. It means God no longer looks at you the same way. It means that your sins no longer bring you into his condemnation. It means that you've been made righteous. You've been made right in the eyes of God. That acceptance and that love and that approval we're so desperately looking for. It's not something that we can gain by our own effort or by our own performance. The righteousness that we so desperately need is received through faith and the performance of Christ in our place. You see, friends, when by the grace of God you believe in Jesus, his perfect record is transferred to you. When by the grace of God, you believe in Christ, his perfect record of obedience, his perfect record of delight in the Father, his perfect record is transferred to you and God's disposition towards you, his view of you in light of your sins is changed. Justified. And on the basis of the perfect righteousness and right standing with God of Christ for you, you're now made right in the eyes of God. 
It's not something you could ever work up. It's not something you could ever earn. It's something that you simply receive. Theologians for centuries have called this the great exchange. On the cross, Christ took your sin, your unfaithfulness, your lack of fidelity to the relationship, your track record. He took it upon himself by the grace of God through faith in his work for you and his obedience for you, his death for you. His perfect record is transferred over to you. No one has written more eloquently about this in church history than Martin Luther. And he wrote about it in his commentary on the book of Galatians. And Luther said this, what you and I all so desperately want and need is what he calls a Christian righteousness. And Luther describes it this way, that God imputes to us apart from any of our works. In other words, it's a passive righteousness. Every other righteousness that you and I try to attain is an active righteousness. But apart from our works, Christian righteousness is a passive righteousness. If I tried to fulfill the law myself, I couldn't trust in what I had accomplished. That's the end to which God brought me to. If my right standing with God was based on the perfect performance that I could put on before God in order for her to stand up and give me a clap and know that I was right, I finally came to the realization that I would never know that I had put on the perfect performance. And not only that, it would never stand up to the judgment of God, Luther said. So here's what we do. Luther says we simply rest on the righteousness of Christ, which I can't produce, I can only receive. And God the Father freely gives it to me through Jesus. Let me try to help you out this way. The Heidelberg Catechism says, how can you and I know we're right with God? Righteousness, right standing. How can we know we're right? When do we finally realize we're right? The answer is this. Only by true faith in Christ Jesus even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, of having never kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, the perfect righteousness of Christ, as if I had never sinned or been a sinner, and as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Friends, that is the message that will take you from death to life. And for many of you, if you were like me at all, that is the message that will bring exhausted Christians energy and joy. I can't tell you how tiring and exhausting it is to always have to put on a performance to always feel like in every environment that you're going into, you don't have to be something other than yourself, but you don't know who you are. You are whoever you need to be. And then every single day before you put your head down on the pillow to go to sleep at night, you might wonder if I don't wake up, have I put on the right show for God? That when I wake up, I'll be where I want to be. Some of you know how tiring and exhausting that is. Friends, when you understand the righteousness that is yours by grace through faith, the justification that is yours, the way that God views you because of his son in spite of your sin and the approval that is yours because of his son, that's where the exhaustion goes away. 
That's where the energy springs from. That's where the joy comes from. This is the true biblical doctrine on which a Christianity that will change the world can become real for you. One pastor, in thinking about this, tried to communicate it this way. I want you to know that no one is so bad that they cannot be justified by God. And no one is so good that they need not to be justified by Him. God wants you to know that He justifies failures and sinners, not by the law, which is impossible for you to keep, but by grace, which is impossible for anything to defeat. Friends, have you given up on your performance? Have you given up, in a sense, on yourself and your ability to make yourself right before God? Have you given up on yourself and anything in you that you think can bring you the justification and the righteousness before God that you so desperately want? Have you gone all in with all your life? Have you put all your chips across the table squarely onto the person and work of Christ for you? Or are you still bent on believing that you have it within you to put on the perfect performance? That you can do what you think is necessary to know that you're right with God. Friends, will you stop believing in yourself? Will you stop believing in your ability to perform? And will you simply, by faith, believe in the one who gave himself up and loved you? You can do that this morning. You can look by faith to Christ, full of grace and full of mercy towards you. You can say to him, I'm sorry for my failures. I see all the sin. I see all the things that I think I've done that earn me righteousness with you. I see all the good performances that I've put on that I think bring your approval and bring your favor. And I'm done with them all. I see it all and I'm done with it. I want your cross to cover, to cover me completely. I receive, your, I receive your righteousness. I receive your justification. Friends, I promise you, if that is your heart towards the Lord, he will be faithful to you. He will give himself to you and you will be his fully and forever. Friends, I'm going to give you a couple of moments to deal with the Lord this morning. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on his word to you this morning. And then the musicians will play. And for those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus, for their justification, for their righteousness, for your right standing with God. If you've said, I'm all in on Christ for my standing with God. I can't perform it. I can't earn it. I can't do it. We're going to invite you to come forward this morning and proclaim with joy your confidence in Jesus by receiving communion, taking a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place for your sin, dipping it in that chalice of juice, remembering his blood poured out for your forgiveness, sealing for those by the grace of God through faith in him, righteousness and justification. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we invite you during that time to receive Jesus. Are you willing to stop the performance? Are you willing to go all in on him? I promise you, if you are, he's committed to you forever. Let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning 
for the goodness of your mercy and grace to us through the work of your Son. God, you know what needs to happen in every heart here. You know what needs to happen in every life here. You know that for the first time or the first time in a long time, we need to stop performing. God, I ask that you would do what's necessary by your Holy Spirit for each heart here to come to the realization and the joy in knowing that our standing with you is is firmly rooted in the work of your Son on our behalf. We ask that you would do that in his name for his glory, for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.